After six decades of aggression, tension, and division, is this the beginning of a genuine, lasting Korean spring? I'm Andre Goulet. John Carl Baker, fellow with Washington, D.C. think tank the Plowshare Fund, joins me to talk about peace, nuclear proliferation, and a historic week on the Korean Peninsula. Hi, John. Hi, how are you doing? In a piece published last week in the American Socialist Quarterly magazine, Jacobin, you write about Daniel Ellsberg's new book, The Doomsday Machine, Confessions of a Nuclear War Planner. Remind us, who's Daniel Ellsberg? Ellsberg is most famous for being the person who leaked the Pentagon Papers, uh, which resulted in a whole series of controversies during the Nixon administration. He was then an analyst for RAND um, that, you know, was part of the uh, Watergate process, um, and a lot of the revelations about it came out later. Uh, but even at the time, it was incredibly controversial because it was classified information. But Ellsberg at the time also acquired a bunch of documents about nuclear war planning and had been involved in this for several years as a RAND analyst and, and later, uh, I guess, as a person in the Defense Department. And he kind of had to put off the book that he planned to write uh, at the time and put off the leaking of the documents, and many of them were actually later lost. But he has finally gotten around to writing the book that he always wanted to write and has now written this interesting book that's sort of a memoir of his own experiences as a nuclear war planner, but also a critique of U.S. policy when it comes to nuclear weapons. And it's a very affecting read, and I think it's a a kind of timely intervention into a lot of the discussion about nuclear weapons we're having right now, in particular because Trump's in office, and a lot of people are very worried about the fact that um, he – seems to be so erratic, and I think a lot of people are concerned about his finger on the button. So he's kind of the Edward Snowden of his time. Uh, And you write that Ellsberg, when reflecting on the danger of America's nuclear arsenal being under the control of an impulsive reality TV star, rejects the pretty standard opinion that this is not normal. And he thinks that someone like Trump with his finger on the proverbial button is normal, or at least it's become so. And that's the problem. What does that mean? Well, the basic idea is that Ellsberg is responding to an environment in which Trump is constantly regarded as this exceptional figure. And I think we're all familiar with this. This, It's the the cry that this is not normal, That, and basically the idea that Trump came out of nowhere, that he's not really a conservative, that he's really this kind of different sort of figure who's a reactionary and and a populist. Uh, But Ellsberg makes the point that when it comes to nuclear weapons, Trump is really just personification in a way of the what he calls the madness of the system that's underneath him. If we're worried about Trump's finger on the button, we should have been worried about everybody else's finger on the button, because as Ellsberg shows, the entire apparatus is really set up towards go. That's a kind of phrase that he uses. It's oriented towards a launch. And we've created this system over a series of decades and it's grown up and grown up into what he rightly calls a doomsday machine. And then suddenly we're shocked when at the top of it, there's this person who people regard as irresponsible and erratic. And part of the implication of the book is that this is really just, um, this is, this was only, this is going to happen. It was only a matter of time. And in a way, we should actually be grateful to Trump because even though there is a real danger of him in control of the arsenal, clearly, that the fact that he's at the top has really exposed, um, what's underneath him. And it's created a level of attention to the nuclear arsenal that just didn't exist before. I mean, when I was brought on from my job here at the Plowshares Fund, the assumption was that people just weren't interested in nuclear weapons anymore. And that even though there were a lot of 
social justice movements about other things, uh, racial justice, uh, economic justice, and so forth, there wasn't a lot of attention to disarmament. But that changed very dramatically during the 2016 campaign, where suddenly the issue was back on back in the public sphere and back in the public eye. And that really hasn't gone away. I think that's only kind of expanded now that we're a year or more into the Trump administration. So I kind of appreciate Ellsberg writing this book because he is both taking advantage of the moment, and I think he rightly understands that there is attention to it because of Trump, but he's really pushing back against the excessive attention to Trump. He really wants us to look at the structures that are underneath Trump and that to some extent enabled Trump to take on this incredibly dangerous position he's in, where he can, you know, he has unilateral power to launch a massive nuclear arsenal whenever he wants. No one has to, he doesn't have to check with anyone. Congress doesn't really have a say. Uh, He can just do it, and that is a truly mad system. And it's not Trump necessarily that is the madman in charge of it. It's the system itself is the problem. Right. This reminds me of the anecdotal story of the nuclear football, which is the duffel bag with the nuclear codes, the nuclear button, whatever, being brought to Mar-a-Lago and kind of uh, admired by some of the guests at the Winter White House, uh, which is insane. Okay. The title of the book isn't meant to be hyperbole. It's a reference to research from climatologist Alan Roebuck, who has worked to normalize what was once a controversial idea. That's the theory of nuclear winter. Uh, What's the nuclear winter hypothesis? I mean, the idea is basically that in a nuclear war, uh, there'd be a series of explosions, obviously, and massive fires. And that as a result of these fires and of the explosions that were happening everywhere, burning out of control, a bunch of soot and smoke would be lofted up into the, into the atmosphere, and it would block out the sun, or at least you know, greatly reduce the amount of sunlight that reaches the Earth. Um, and it would lower the temperature on Earth for this reason. And at the time, in the early 1980s, you know, climatological research was still kind of, I mean, it wasn't in its infancy, but it wasn't nearly at the level that it was today with the kind of massive computing, computing power we have. And it was a controversial claim. Uh, Carl Sagan was one of the people to make it, and he was largely associated with it. But there was a lot of pushback uh, from a lot of different communities. And But in now in recent years, I think technology has progressed to the level that climate modeling is constantly employed in the study of uh, anthropogenic climate change. But you can also apply it to situations like nuclear war, which would affect the climate in, in such a way. Um, so what Robach has done in recent Robach and some of his his partners have done in recent years is use that sort of that climate modeling uh, and apply it to a situation in which there was a nuclear war. And they found that basically Sagan was right, and the people in the 1980s who were talking about nuclear winter were correct. And there would be massive climatological effects of a nuclear war, even a quote unquote small one. You know, a few dozen nuclear warheads would have huge impacts, not just on the countries that were involved, but on the entire world. And Robach's work suggests that even a limited nuclear war could lead to 2 billion dead because of the global crop failures instigated by an atmospheric blackout due to the smoke and the soot of destruction. And a major war involving thousands of Russian or American warheads could threaten the existence of humanity. His research claims that initiating this kind of war would be suicide, even if the belligerent country somehow prevented a retaliatory strike. Tell us more about that. Yeah, I mean, for years, of course, the one of the prevailing theories about nuclear war and how nuclear war would come about and, and a theory regarding how it might be kind of prevented as well was mutually assured destruction. But in fact, what Ro- Robach has shown is that 
in a war uh, in which, you know, between the U.S. and Russia, which together have more than 90% of the world's nuclear weapons, even if one of the belligerents launched their nuclear weapons, in other words, they did a preemptive strike, and they succeeded at, you know, taking out the other power and preventing a retaliatory strike, they would actually just be endangering their own existence. In other words, it would be uh, self-assured destruction, sad instead of mad, because of the climatological effects. There would be, if you will, a kind of blowback from the attack, which would just cause themselves to die off through the, through, you know, uh, crops that died off uh, through starvation that would happen as a result of that. It would basically be a suicidal move, even if you accomplished quote-unquote victory. So it calls into question the whole idea of having a nuclear arsenal to counter uh, the, another one. Um, and it shows that you know having thousands and thousands of warheads like the United States and Russia have really is a doomsday machine. And it's not hyperbole, just like he talks about in the book. This is a real threat that we're posed with. And Ellsberg, you know, says in the text, at the very least, we ought to be reducing our arsenal to the level where it isn't really a doomsday machine. Clearly, any kind of nuclear war would be an absolute catastrophe. But when we're talking about the U.S. and Russian arsenals, we're talking about, you know, the, the potential destruction of humanity, uh, possibly mass extinctions from other of other species. I mean, it would be an absolute catastrophe on a scale that's almost difficult to comprehend. You write that in a sane world, this would prompt our ruling class to question the rationality of stockpiling thousands of nuclear weapons. The military and our elected officials are okay with maintaining this literal doomsday machine, even though in the event of a war, they'd die just as much as anybody else would. And you say it speaks to what you call the pervasive irrationality regarding nuclear weapons in the halls of power or what Ellsberg calls institutionalized madness. Has this irrationality always driven nuclear pol American nuclear policy? Well, it's difficult to say that it's always driven it, but I think his book shows the growth of it over time. And I think actually one of the compelling arguments of the text, I think it's sort of subtle and you have to bring it together, is this idea that, you know, in the early days of U.S. nuclear weapons, like before the Manhattan Project and during the Manhattan Project, the development of atomic weaponry was regarded as a potential check on the possibility of a German program. And of course, the, the Nazis did, did actually have an atomic weapons program, but it was quite rudimentary. It never got to the stage of the American one. But Ellsberg's book shows that even if that was an understandable and a sort of rational pursuit, it very quickly developed a momentum of its own and became quite irrational. And of course, ultimately, the, our nuclear weapons that we developed during World War II weren't used on the Germans or they weren't used to check German uh, weapons themselves. They were dropped on the Japanese in a completely pointless uh, and, and frankly, quite genocidal attack uh, near the end of the war. And then Ellsberg documents these other different moments, that he, some of which he witnessed personally, where you can see how the existence of these weapons takes on a momentum of its own. And it really um, is constantly orienting itself toward their use. It's kind of rushing ahead to the possibility of use. And no one really stops to think, should we be doing this? Why are we acting this way? There isn't a sense of critique as he witnesses it and his own experiences in the nuclear weapons apparatus. There's no sort of outside perspective asking deeper questions about 
the rationality of the pursuit. And so it just sort of builds and builds and builds and builds until we end up with a doomsday machine. And he's quite honest in the text. He says no one intends to build a doomsday machine. It's not like he places blame uh, on certain people for the production of this. He, he makes the point that this is something that happened over a series of time and through a series of decisions, and there just wasn't anyone at any point yelling halt. And I think what he's trying to do now is to get us to use the, the Trump moment to step back and say, what have we done? Can we change it and prevent the worst from happening? Yeah, and I wanted to explore this kind of inevitability um, to help set the table for why the aggressive American military posturing surrounding North Korea's nuclear program has been so terrifying and why the diplomatic engagement that's been happening between the two Koreas in the last weeks, which I think has short-circuited the march to war, has been so important. On Twitter, you wrote that South Korean President Moon Jae-in has managed to pull the U.S. back from the brink of war while scoring a major inter-Korean diplomatic coup in the process. So what were some of your major takeaways from last weekend's summit? I mean, first, I would say that the summit is a, a an absolute success. I think it's something to be commended. I don't think American analysts are celebrating it enough. I think they are being overly skeptical, and I understand the desire to be cautious, and and I understand their sense that we've been through summits before and so forth. But I think it is a momentous occasion, if only because it did prevent the rush to war. I absolutely think there was a real risk of the U.S. launching an attack on North Korea. That was the thing that we were talking that was you know talked about publicly. It was something that was discussed in Washington D.C. This was a thing that really could have happened, and I think the South Koreans and to some extent the North Koreans took it very seriously. And what's so fascinating about the summit is that this was largely an inter-Korean uh, creation. Kim Jong Un in his New Year's uh, speech opened up the door to it. Moon Jae-in has long been an advocate for engagement with the North. This is something that he campaigned on when he was was running. Uh, And both of them, for their own reasons, for their own initiative, by their own initiative, sought to create this summit and bring the two Koreas together. I do think that, you know, there is a lot of work to be done. A summit is great. It's only a summit. There has to be follow-through. But many of the things that are included in the joint declaration are really encouraging. Um, there's uh, attempts to turn potential sites of naval conflict into a zone of peace. Uh, so, in other words, a, a chance to de-escalate tensions or an attempt to de-escalate tensions, uh, I believe it is in the West Sea. There's other forms of inter-Korean exchange, which is something that you know, had been largely halted in recent years under the conservative administration, previous conservative administration in the South. And I think the Moon administration takes these kind of exchanges very seriously. And while people in the United States might view educational and cultural exchanges as a little immaterial, these things really matter. And they really do create a sense of inter-Korean brotherhood. They, um, they, have, they in their own way, can kind of de-escalate public tensions. Um, I really think the summit was a huge success. I think it did a great job at setting up the Trump-Kin summit, which is going to be happening in a few weeks. And I was just reading today a very good analysis of the, of the summit from Yun Kim, uh, and she was making the point that all of this talk about, oh, well, they didn't say enough about denuclearization, there isn't enough detail in it, there's just this mention. Um, she was making the point that that's not surprising. Um, Moon has long said that this has to, the U.S. has to be a part of this discussion, that that is, in a lot of ways, 
a U.S.-North Korean debate. And the summit facilitated that meeting extremely well. It even talked about complete denuclearization, which Duyan was making the point that, you know, that inclusion of that term complete actually matters because that's what the U.S. is supposedly pursuing. I think that is a, a tall order, admittedly. Uh, the complete denuclearization of the North remains unlikely. But at the very least, there's a possibility to cap the program, to freeze it where it stands, perhaps roll it back a bit. And I think, you know, everyone is going to be happy if that occurs. And at the very least, war has been prevented. And that war in the Korean Peninsula would have been an absolute disaster. Yeah. And in another piece that you published at Jacobin this January, Peace is Still Possible, you laid out the peace potential of a North Korean participation in the PyeongChang Olympics. So how does it feel to see all of this play out on a personal level? On a personal level, it's surprising. I mean, I was incredibly pessimistic for weeks. And here at my organization and just in my conversations with friends, we were talking about the very real possibility of there being an attack on North Korea, which could have spiraled into a larger war on the peninsula. This is something that I took very seriously at the time and I continue to take very seriously. So I, I, my first kind of response to this is a bit of whiplash that we've moved so quickly from the chance of war to a real diplomatic opening that could you know, substantially last, become a, a, a form of lasting peace on the peninsula, a, a peace between the U.S. And, and the DPRK even. I think this is, a, a, it's surprising, it's shocking, but in an incredibly positive way. I really hope that it's maintained. Um, but I think that some of the details that were talked about in the joint declaration have very smartly opened up a path so that the, that kind of prevented the possibility of war from happening again because they talk about events happening in August. There's going to be a reunion of families. Uh, it looks like Moon is going to go to Pyongyang in the fall. So we're talking about you know several months ahead here, in which it's very unlikely that the that the U.S. is ever is going to be able to strike the North. I think uh, it, it's just it's incredibly encouraging and surprising, and, and I'm very happy about it. I want to talk about your criticism of American analysts who see nothing but malicious intent in the historic events of this past weekend, and I think they are historic. It's difficult to argue with that. You write that the alarmism of the American pundit class reveals uh, an underlying American attitude towards South Korea, which uh, American officials publicly praise as an independent democratic power, but privately they view it as a risk to be managed. Too much independence, or running off the leash, as a former State Department official put it earlier this month, is regarded as undermining American power in the Asia-Pacific region. So unpack that for us. How's this inter-Korean engagement forcing the United States to engage more fully with diplomacy? Well, <laughs> first off, I would say that the U.S. loves to talk about the South Korea, about South Korea as an independent nation, and it likes to talk about how the U.S.-South Korea alliance is um, an equal partnership. We talk about South Korea as a partner, but when you poke a little closer, you find very quickly that the United States is overly concerned with its, with its own strategic interests in Northeast Asia, particularly as they, result, as, they, as they relate to China. North Korea is clearly a worry for the United States, but it's also a convenient excuse to maintain a presence there uh, so that it can, can keep up the pressure on China, which is seen as this ascendant power on the global stage and, and sometimes even regarded as, as a potential hegemon to take over from the United States. So that's part of it. 
I think the the what's happening when it comes to South Korea and North Korea is that Moon in particular in the South is pushing back against some of the inequalities of the alliance. It's not that he's rejecting it outright, although there are U.S. analysts who are quite worried about the breakup of the alliance, uh, decoupling as a strategy from the North. I think these fears are mostly overblown. But I think what we are seeing is South Korea exhibiting a degree of independence, like actually pushing for a true partnership with the United States when it comes to the alliance. What's interesting, though, is that in the act of doing that, it's it's getting the United States to take a more uh, or to expose, I suppose, some of the more colonial aspects of the partnership. So you have U.S. analysts talking a lot about the dangers of troop withdrawal, even though the North hasn't even floated this as a possibility. And in the past, they've even said things like they were fine if the troops remain uh, or talking about the dangers of the alliance breaking up. I don't think there's any likelihood of this, even if the North Koreans are pursuing this as some sort of long-term strategy. But it's very telling that the South Korean government, when it tries to exhibit or exert some independence, pushes the United States to take this much more reactionary pose. And it really shows how unequal that relationship has been over the years. I think it's encouraging that the Moon government is stepping out on the global stage uh, it's prevented what, what's often called Korea passing, the idea that Korea is withdrawn in terms of uh, international affairs. I mean, this moon is, is in the driver's seat when it comes to this uh, summit and when it comes to diplomacy. But it remains to be seen how the U.S. is going to respond to this. I think if they regard the South Koreans as, as one State Department uh, person put it, running off the leash, you could see them take some very public statements in opposition or even some more rash actions. I don't think that's likely, but it is fascinating to see how when you have a quote-unquote partner taking a truly independent role and actually trying to be an equal partner, the United States responds very worriedly, and they aren't sure what this is going to mean for their own status in Northeast Asia. So there's a lot of much wider geostrategic concerns that are really being exposed by what's happening between the Koreas. And it says a lot about the United States' interests in Northeast Asia, a lot about the U.S.'s own fear of decline, which a lot of the folks in Washington, D.C. are very concerned about, particularly under Trump. So the inter-Korean uh, detente is really fascinating and good, but it's also exposing a, a much wider uh, issue that relates to US, possible U.S. decline and our own interests as they relate to China and other nations in, the, in, North, the North, in Northeast Asia, including Japan. And meanwhile, National Security Advisor John Bolton is calling Libya a denuclearization model for North Korea. This sounds like kind of a bellicose threat. What do you, what do you think? Yeah, it's absolutely a threat. I mean, the, the situations are so completely different. There's really no, almost no comparison between what happened with Libya and it's you know quite rudimentary program and the north and what have what exists in north korea which is an extensive and very advanced nuclear weapons program with icbms they're really not comparable the idea that bolton appears to have that you know you can just load up everything on a on a, a tanker or a, on some sort of a ship and send it over to the united states is completely ludicrous and he knows this he knows this he's on record as saying that he's in favor of talks because he hopes that they will fail and then the military option will be the only thing left to do. I think he's wrong about that. I also think that many analysts who think that there's the risk of a summit is that uh, if it fails, we will necessarily go to war. I don't think that's the case. I think the, the inter-Korean summit 
has really laid a lot of groundwork for there to be sustained peace at least over a few months, it's going to be extraordinarily hard for the United States to pivot entirely from what's happening right now, this incredible diplomatic opening, back to fi- the fire and fury of a few weeks ago. I don't think it's likely. I think Bolton is, is something to someone to worry about. He absolutely means that as a threat, given what happened to Gaddafi in Libya. But it remains to be seen how much influence he really has on the process. Pompeo uh, has been far more involved in the discussions with North Korea and with the South Koreans. It's unclear exactly what role John Bolton is going to play. I think we should be concerned about him because he's clearly an absolute extremist when it comes to American foreign policy. But I wouldn't be too worried. I think the the Koreans, uh, South and North, have played their hands quite well and at the very least have secured peace for a few more months and, and quite possibly longer. In terms of the American political situation, I keep on coming back to the wag the dog scenario. That's where a political leader uses foreign policy to distract from domestic pressures at home. Because it looks like that's what's playing out here, but not in the usual way, because a peace agreement between the United States and North Korea would cement a legacy for Trump, wouldn't it? I am skeptical that even accomplishing lasting peace on the peninsula is going to uh, overtake all of the rest of his legacy, which is clearly going to be terrible. I mean, the guy is a complete reactionary. His policies on everything else, from economics to immigration, are totally reprehensible. The idea that if he that he played because he played a role in this process, and admittedly it's a minor role. I mean, his, his main role in the process has simply been freaking out those uh, people in in North and South Korea and getting them to take the idea of a, of a U.S. war quite seriously. Um, I, I think the idea that, that he, you know, this is going to be a, a lasting legacy for him is, is pretty silly, even if it actually succeeds. I, I don't think he's going to be remembered for this. And I would say it's good to think of the parallel Nixon goes to China. People often bring this up and say, oh, well, you know, Nixon is remembered for going to China. He was so unlikely because he was a conservative and an anti-communist. That's true. But in the United States, what's Nixon really remembered for? Watergate. Uh, the Nixon goes to China thing is really a, a, a cool anecdote that often gets brought up in bad op-ed pieces. But Nixon is still regarded widely as a total crook. And I have a feeling that's exactly what's going to happen to Trump, even if he has an admittedly minor role in the inter-Korean reconciliation that's going on right now. Senator Lindsey Graham, who once labeled Trump a kook, crazy, and unfit for office, told Fox News on Friday that Donald Trump convinced North Korea and China he was serious about bringing change. We're not there yet, but if this happens, President Trump deserves the Nobel Peace Prize. What do you make of that? I don't think he deserves the Nobel Peace Prize. I guess I'm glad Lindsey Graham isn't calling for mass Korean deaths in defense of the U.S. homeland like he was several months ago. But the idea that Trump deserves the Nobel Peace Prize is pretty silly because as I said earlier, his main role here was scaring everyone to death and getting people on the Korean Peninsula to take seriously the possibility of a U.S. Uh, preemptive strike. I think Moon's comments recently were interesting where he was asked about this and Moon apparently said something like, he can have the prize, we just want peace, which is a smart move. I think Moon has played Trump really well and I'm sure Trump is concerned about his legacy, but no, I don't think Trump deserves the Nobel Peace Prize for this. Maureen Dowd, writing in the New York Times, says that, for the moment, President Trump's peculiar form of diplomacy, a combination of belligerence, bluster, name-calling, and ignorance of history, has somehow produced a possible breakthrough in North Korea that eluded his predecessors. 
Maureen sounds kind of on point here, but it also suggests a really America-centric way of looking at the situation. What, what do you think? Yeah, I took a look at her column, and I noticed that it has a picture at the top of Trump and Moon. But there isn't really a discussion of South Korea in the column at all. And you're right, it's an absolutely American, America-centric uh, view of the whole situation. I think this completely blows Trump's role out of proportion. There may be some role that the pressure campaign is playing, but we don't know that at all right now. We don't have a very good indication of how that has impacted uh, Kim Jong-un's uh, receptivity and his, his willingness to talk with the South. And frankly, I think it's a lot more likely that he was willing to talk to the South because he's in a really good negotiating position. They tested an ICBM. They have a what appears to be a reliable deterrent. We don't really know how reliable it is, but the U.S. has to take it seriously. It appears to be a real deal missile. So he's in a very good position to talk to the South. Uh, South Korean President Moon has been desiring to do engagement with the North for many months. This enabled him to do that. Um, I, I think this is largely an initiative that was taken by uh, both of the Koreas. And the idea that you, President Trump played a role played a role in it and that his you know, threats and his uh, maximum pressure campaign paid off, I think is, is at the very least a little overblown um, and maybe not even relevant. I, I think we really need to think of this as an inter-Korean moment and of an inter-Korean initiative. Leonid Brzezinski in an op-ed at Bloomberg View suggests that he supports what he calls the normalization of Trump and Kim Jong-un, meaning that the achievement of peace on the peninsula would be the ultimate achievement, the ultimate triumph for these two leaders, it would make them both heroes, regardless of whatever other horrible things they've done. What do you make of that? I don't think, honestly, I do not think that Trump and Kim pursuing peace is in any way going to truly normalize their regime. The world is quite aware of what Donald Trump is. And I think they're quite aware of what the North Korean state is and how repressive it is and how Kim Jong-un has a role as the leader of that state um, in reproducing that repression. I don't think it's at risk normalization, and I don't really think that normalization should be praised, which is the point of that Brzezinski column. I think we need to understand that many of the actors in diplomatic agreements have their own interests. They may be morally compromised. But what can come out of those agreements is positive and good and worthy of praise. It doesn't necessarily mean that the people who accomplish it are worthy of praise. And I, I think it's, it's conflating a variety of possibilities to talk about normalization of Trump. Again, as I referenced before, I don't think the world is going to forget what the Trump presidency was really about and how it was, in fact, this real revanchist nationalist moment with incredibly conservative right-wing policies instituted by a guy who was incredibly erratic and a terrible leader. And when it comes to the North, people aren't going to forget about the North's human rights violations, about some of its you know, bellicose actions when it comes to the South, the repression that exists in the North. These aren't things that are going to be instantly forgotten just because an agreement is reached. But an agreement would be good. And, uh, and peace would be positive. And I think that's important to, to bear in mind. Nobody wants to make predictions about this erratic, unpredictable moment in American political life. But what do you anticipate happening with the impending Trump-Kim summit? I am hesitant to, to make predictions. But I will say I do not predict that it will be an absolute failure. I think that 
people who are worried that Trump is going to enter this summit and then find out that the North isn't going to instantly denuclearize, and then he's going to run out screaming and reject the whole process and, Im- and immediately go to military options, I think those people are wrong. I do not think that is likely. I think what is quite possible is that the summit will be fairly immaterial, that it will accomplish some kind of an agreement to denuclearize denuclearize over the long term or over a set of years, maybe by the end of the Trump presidency, according to the North. Whether they really accomplish this or not is going to be in the details. This is going to depend on like serious, sustained diplomatic engagement between the two countries, something which I'm not sure Trump is capable of. Um, I think it'll be up to a lot of the folks in the State Department and elsewhere to do that. But I think I do not think we need to be terribly concerned about a summit being an absolute failure. I think the inter-Korean summit was such a success and the detente that exists between those countries so significant that even if the even if the summit between Trump and Kim really was a disaster, it's not going to meet an immediate rush to war. And that's about as much of a prediction as I'm going to make. I think it's, diff- it's difficult to foresee exactly how Trump and Kim are going to react to one another. Uh, but I will say, I, do, I, I would downplay the risk that the summit blows up into an immediate rush to war. John Carl Baker is a fellow at the Plowshares Fund in Washington, D.C., and an occasional contributor to Jacobin Magazine. You can find his recent work, It's a Mad, 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 Mad World, and Peace is Still Possible at JacobinMag.com. John, thanks for speaking with me today. Thank you so much. Creophile for this month. Throw this podcast if you want at patreon.com slash thecreophile. Music on this episode is Busan's Say Sue Me from their new album, Where We Were Together. You can follow John on Twitter at John Carl Baker. I'm on there too at Andre Margoulet. Look for new episodes of The Creophile on iTunes and Stitcher and as a feature contributor at Korea FM and KoreaBridge.net. Find them and like them on Facebook. Check back wherever you found this podcast in early June for a new episode. Until then, I'm Andre Goulet. Thanks for listening.